Well, good morning, church, once again. Praise the Lord for another opportunity after last night to gather again and to build each other's faith, to be encouraged in the gospel, to encourage one another to look to Christ. Praise God. I want to invite you before we get into God's word to bow down and let us pray together. Jesus, to you, we lift our hearts. We thank you that through you we have access to the throne of grace. You made the way, you opened the door. And Father, we thank you that we have relationship with you through your Son. And this is why we're here, this is why we continue to gather week after week and even midweek in order to be encouraged to look to Christ, to be built up in faith, hope, and love. And I pray as we open up your word this morning that you would just inspire us to do the same for one another, encourage us. Pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. Teach us what we do not know, Lord. Encourage us to do the things we know Help us to walk away from this place renewed in our faith, in our hope, and in our love for you and for one another. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of you who may be joining us here uh, first time, over the past uh, month and a half or so, we have been going through a series entitled Grace Saturated Community. And as we were going through this series, we are looking at selected New Testament passages that teach us how we ought to relate to one another in the body of Christ, the one another passages. Today is the eighth one another, believe it or not. And uh, next Sunday, we will close this series as we get into our new Advent series in December. This morning, we are looking at the theme of encouraging one another. Uh, And just like the first seven that we looked at, this one also, believe it or not, requires community. Because I just want to remind you again and again, you cannot do any of these one another's at home by yourself, separated from the other, (laughs) one another. You know, several years ago, former American prisoners of war were interviewed to determine what methods used by the enemy had been most effective in breaking them down, wearing them out, breaking their heart. And researchers learned that the prisoners, they really didn't break down from physical deprivation or even torture as quickly as they did from solitary confinement or from being frequently separated from their friends. It was further discovered that soldiers drew their greatest strength from those that they were closely attached to in their small military units. And I was just reading this and thinking about that, how Can we relate this to our Christian context here to Grace Hill Church? These observations, they give us greater insight into why Christians need fellowship with one another, with other believers to help them remain loyal, not to break down, to help them remain loyal to our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, our own personal relationship with God As vital as it is, it is not sufficient to produce spiritual maturity and for us to endure. Relationships within a unified, spirit-filled body of believers, they are essential for growth and for maintaining our individual faithfulness to the Lord. If you get rid of community, if you get rid of what we're doing here this morning, there is no chance that we will be able to survive. And God so saw it that he put us into the body, into a 
community. We need one another for encouragement. Encourage. I don't know if you have ever did a study on the word encourage or encouragement. To encourage means to come alongside someone. It literally means to, to just buddy up shoulder to shoulder, maybe even put a, uh, you know, right, uh, your arm around somebody and to help them along, to strengthen, to support. You know, oftentimes if you see, I don't know, a sporting event maybe, and you see someone get injured on the field or on the basketball court, and, and what oftentimes happens is that guy cannot walk off by himself, so you have a couple of trainers or fellow players, they come in, right? and they wrap their arms around them and they, they lift them up and they, they just limp off the floor and go into the locker room. This is the, the term, this is the picture of encouragement, to help somebody, to give them strength, to inspire them. When do you usually need someone to come alongside of you to help you, to build you up, to support you? The answer is when things aren't going very well, when you're on the floor, when you just got injured, right? That's when you need someone to come alongside. When you feel like giving up, when you heard some terrible news, when you're losing faith, when you're no longer hopeful, when the future looks very dim. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to study verses 19 through 26 in which the author of Hebrews exhorts his readers and us by extension to live in a community, to come together for the purpose of encouragement. After writing 10 chapters describing the superiority of Jesus Christ and why we and the original readers must follow after Christ, In these final verses, he calls them to action. First, the doctrine. First, the foundation. First, the gospel. Here's why you need to believe in Christ. Here's why Jesus is superior. Here's why he's worthy. And then here he turns around. Chapter 10, verse 19 is this turning point in the whole book where he calls them to action. Now react. Now do something in light of this. And similar to other passages we've studied over the past two months, this call to action is rooted in this rich soil of the perfect person and work of Jesus Christ. Again and again, friends, we are reminded that the gospel is the only true and effective facilitator to any action God is calling us to do. The gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the facilitator. He is the motivator. Get up and do and work. So why don't we read here Hebrews chapter 10. We'll begin with verse 19. We'll read through 26 and we'll see what the Lord has in store for us this morning. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a living, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with clean, sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, this passage over the past uh, year and a half or so, has been one of the most discussed passages alongside Romans 13, probably. Submission to authority. But Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 26, especially verses 24 and 25 here, there's been much discussion, much has been spoken. Why? Because of the encouragement to meet together and the importance why we ought to gather. 
What is the call here for the church? What should we be doing? I think it's pretty clear that we are told to gather together. We should gather. And the question is, why gather? Why come together? Why meet? And he answers that question in verse 25, and he says, you meet to encourage, and you encourage to meet. Meet to encourage. And what should we be encouraging one another in? And here's where the main theme of this entire passage is. He says this, brothers, sisters, you're one family of God, therefore brethren. And as one family in Christ, he says, we must encourage one another to grow in faith, hope, and love. That's why we meet. We meet to encourage in faith, hope, and love. And he builds those three things out for us in verses 22, 23, and 24. He gives the basis first, and then he says, let me exhort you now to do this. And so Hebrews, you oftentimes hear that it's, um, it's sort of a sermon, right? It's it, where, where this preacher, he, he writes down a sermon of exhortation and And we're just going to borrow his outline here for us. We're not going to get all tricky here. The outline is laid up for us. Verses 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. And verse 24, let us consider. So I want us to look at these three things. Number one, he says, let us draw near in faith. Let us draw near in faith. Here's one thing we ought to be encouraging one another in. And this is what the author is encouraging us to do. Draw near in faith. What does it mean to draw near in faith? Well, first of all, he says in verses 19 and 20, it is to draw near with confidence. Therefore, brethren, friends, Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us have confidence to come before God. I don't know when was the last time you read the whole book of Hebrews, but throughout the book, this book is filled with Old Testament references and imagery. And that's why many people believe that this letter is written to the Jewish Christians. And in our verse here this morning, the author says that we are now, check this out, we are now able to enter the holy place. We are now able to enter the holy place. Yet he's not referring to the holy place of the tabernacle or the temple, Because that would spell all kinds of issues for us. Doom and gloom. (laughs) He's not saying you go back right into that Old Testament setup and enter the holy place because if you do, you will die. That is not what he's calling us to do. Only priests could enter the holy place once a day and the holy of holies once a year. It was restricted. No one else had access And in the chapters leading here to these verses, the author had argued for Christ's supremacy over the Old Testament priests. And as a result, he says this, there is now a better holy place that we can enter. And what is this holy place? Well, this holy place is the very presence of God. We can bypass this earthly, this physical setup, and we can enter directly into the presence of God. And he says this, friends, you have confidence. We have confidence. We don't come in timid. We don't come in unsure if there's a place for us. If we have an assigned seat, we are told that we can come in with certainty and we can come in with boldness. Since we have confidence, let us draw near. Chapter four, verse 16 says, therefore... He already said the same thing. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. You go in, you approach God, Christian, because you can. Isn't that great? You know, a few years ago, our youth group here from this church, we went to see a a Kings game. I believe it was the same year or maybe the year after that we went to, or that the new arena in downtown was built, the Golden One Center. 
I remember as we got to the door, man, we were so excited. I was so excited. Not much, so much to see the Kings because there's not much to be excited over, over that team, unfortunately. <laughs> Sorry, Kings fans. They give you a heart attack every time you watch them. But just to see the arena. The arena is impressive. Um, at that point in time, it was just teched out. It was the most technologically advanced arena um, in the entire United States. And so everybody was going in there just excited to see all the gadgets, everything there is uh, to see there. And I remember as we got in, we took out the ticket, right? And on that ticket, you usually see section, row, and seat, right? And so you start looking, and, and you know, for us, we were, we were way up there, right, uh, where you need like binoculars and oxygen mask, but it was good. We were in there. We were excited that, that we had a, a seed, but what happened is when I went up there, climbed all those stairs, um, come up to my row and seat, and I'm scanning, and I see a person sitting right there, right in my seat. Um, so what happens is I, I pulled out a ticket, and I'm like, okay, I must be in the wrong place, and Okay, so the same section, section is right, the row is cool, and the seat is the same, but I have this guy, so what did I do? Everything checks out. What, what should be my response? Do I just pack up and go home? No. You uh, politely tap him on the shoulder and say, sir, can you check your ticket because you're in the wrong seat, right? I have the right to be here. This is my seat, right? I, I purchased my ticket and I have, you have all the confidence to be there and to politely ask that person to find his own seat. I had the proof. That was my seat. Friends, this is in a similar way what the author of Hebrew is saying. He says, you and I, we belong in the presence of God that was once reserved for a special tribe of God's chosen people. He says, you enter confidently. You enter confidently. Your way is open. But he says, wait, wait a minute, don't forget that just like the Old Testament prophets, we are not qualified on our own to be in God's presence. It's not because we did something. We did not earn. We had no means of purchasing this ticket to be in God's presence. What is the basis of our confidence? I mean, he's so sure here, we have confidence but he says, uh, hold it, lest you think it's in you. No, end of verse 19, by the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus. It is by faith in the perfect work of Jesus on the cross that we can come in confidently knowing that the son has completed all that the father required. That is why we come in confidently. Turn back one chapter in chapter nine, he says this in verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. Jesus shed his blood and the shedding of his blood satisfied the just penalty that God had imposed because of our sin. And so the author says, because of that, we can approach God. We don't approach him on, on any of our own good works, but because the penalty for our bad works was satisfied by the good work of Christ. This is not a brash confidence, but it is a humble confidence. It is Gracious confidence. 
But look, he goes on in verse 20. He continues to elaborate on this, and he says our confidence is also rooted and grounded in the new and living way. The new and living way. It is the new way because there's no longer required an adherence to the old way, to the old sacrificial system. We have a new sacrifice, friends, that was slain for us. A fresh sacrifice, a new, fresh sacrifice. And the way into the presence of God is now open to whoever believes. For God, we were quoted, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes will have access. We have sacrifice for sin. And what sets this new way apart from the old, it's because it's not just a new and fresh way, it's a living way. Not only is our sacrifice for sin forever alive, but he gives life. Jesus, in offering up himself, he died and was resurrected to life. And as one who is made alive, he is able to give life to the dead. We remember what Jesus declared before his death and resurrection in, in John 14, 6, don't we? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. One commentator said the way into God's presence is no longer characterized by death, but by following the path of the living one. We don't have to wait till we die to be in the presence of God. He is writing to those who are alive and says, friends, Christians, you have access today into the very presence of God because of what Jesus did for you. Without the death of Christ, making this new and living way, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. And if left to figure it out on our own, we would stand before a holy God, rightfully condemned, and we would come to the inevitable end of eternal suffering in hell, forever removed from his presence. And yet, beloved, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus had offered for us a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, verse 20, that is his flesh. And when the readers thought of a veil, they probably thought of this separation, this curtain that separated the holy of holies from the holy place. The room that I said that Old Testament priest would have an opportunity, a privilege to come in once a year to meet God by the Ark of the Covenant. No one else could come in. And this veil, every time they would approach it, immense separation. You can't come in there. This illustrated the chasm that existed between the holy God and sinful men. But remember, something incredible happened at the moment that Christ died. And Mark records it for us in Mark 15, 37 and 38, where he says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The way that was once restricted is now wide open for all to come in. But notice the author is likened Jesus' body to the veil. And the point that he's making is this. Jesus' flesh had to be torn apart in order for us to have access to God. It is through his flesh, through his body, being dealt a great blow on the cross that we now can have confidence to come into the very throne room of God. The rent body of Jesus is your access to the throne of God. And you know what that means? It means that we come confidently. We come based on the merit of Christ. And he wants them to know as they read this, because of all this work that he laid out in chapters one through 10, he says, now you can come in, draw near with confidence, 
But, but don't stop there. He gives them yet another reason why they must come in. And he says, because we have a great high priest over the house of God, the priest. Man, we all need a priest. Priest offered sacrifices, prayers, and praises on behalf of people to God. Their work made it possible for sinners to approach God, although on a very limited basis in the Old Testament. All people needed that mediator. If you come to God without a priest, you die. And yet Jesus, as the author of Hebrews indicates in chapters 5 through 9, offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. And because he lives forever, chapter 7, 25 says, he continues to intercede for his people, for his people. That's why this house of God here at the end of 21, it it refers to people. It refers to believers. God doesn't dwell in tabernacles or, or temples, but in the hearts of individuals into a much greater reality corporately in the temple. We make up the temple of the living God according to 1 Corinthians 3 and 6. Beloved, to draw near in faith is to be confident what the scripture teaches. And do you believe here, sitting here this morning, that this is true of you? That because of Jesus, and only because of Jesus, you belong in the congregation of the redeemed. You have a pass because of Christ. And, and as we were reminded yesterday during dinner here, that God, the creator of you, the universe, he wants us in his presence. He longs for us to be in his presence, clothed in his son. He provides access. He provides the clothing. And here's the encouragement. Draw near. Let us draw near with confidence. But also he goes on in verse 22. Let us draw near with sincerity. Sincerity. It is to have this pure, undivided attention or allegiance towards God. When you draw near to God, your heart, your full heart, sincere heart, full heart is after God. You're not seeking God. You're not drawing in because there's a side benefit, right? You're looking for this relationship because you want the relationship with God, not because there is a byproduct of having a relationship with God. God is not a stepping stone to get something or to get to someone else. No, he says your heart, your your whole life, right? This is what the heart stands for. Your whole life is focused on God because you believe that he alone matters and he alone satisfies. That's what we studied in Matthew 5, 8, where he says, blessed are the pure in heart, pure in heart, undivided, solely focused, for they shall see God. Drawing near with sincerity also means that you're not trying to hide your struggles, your sins before the Lord. The Lord knows, friends, the Lord knows this is why we need a savior. We come repentant, we come full of faith. He says, with full assurance of faith, knowing that you have been made clean by the blood of Jesus. Our faith only rests on the perfect person and work of Jesus Christ, who is described as the author and perfecter of our faith. Later on in Hebrews 12, 2, we draw near knowing that we belong to him. We draw near knowing Jesus not only gets us in, but also gets us through in life. Church, friends, when you find yourself defeated in your battle against sin, when you are discouraged or when you become especially aware of your propensity to sin, you know, there are moments when you're just, it seems like a tsunami of realization that, man, I am, I am just terrible. When you come together with saints and like right now maybe and your heart heart is dull and you don't want to sing praises to the Lord. You don't want to build others' faith. Man, what is it that stabilizes you and that boosts you up? It is faith in this message, friends, 
as you begin to reflect and thank God that you are accepted in Christ and that you belong to Christ and that you are helped by your high priest every moment of your life. You are reminded of this internal work of the spirit that he had performed in making you clean from an evil conscience, as he goes on to say in verse 22, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here again, you you see the illustration and the imagery borrowed from the Old Testament. When you believe in Christ, you are cleansed by the Holy Spirit from having this twisted conscience that was insensitive to, to the things that were right or wrong. When you embrace Christ by faith, your conscience becomes guilt-free. Why? Because the sin is removed. Christ paid it all. And so the call is draw near, come close, go into the very presence of God. So friends, when we gather together to worship, do you, do you come confidently before the Lord knowing that you are redeemed and your sin is forgiven, you will no longer be judged? I mean, do you sing like you believe this? When we sing gospel-saturated music, do you sing like this is true? Do you believe what you profess? He wants to stir them up, and he says, you take him and stir him up in faith too. Encourage him to look at the cross, not your stuff that you got going around here, but through this stuff, through all of your pain, doubts, if you profess Christ, look to Christ. Enter confidently. And the problem for so many of us is that we suffer from spiritual amnesia. And we forget that Christ has accomplished and opened up the way. We forget sometimes that our sins are forgiven, that we get all the benefits of Christ, not by earning, but by asking, by receiving, by faith. We begin to listen to the outside noise. We begin to listen to the enemy that tells us, man, you need to do get better. You need to get better at it. You know, we end up chasing our own tail in Christian life until we are wrecked. And we come and we say, listen, I tried this and I tried that and I did this and I read this and I prayed that and I spent time with this guy and, and, and what we need to do And what the Lord reminds us this morning is that we have access by faith alone, not by doing and impressing, but through repentance and sincerity of heart, approaching God, confessing our sin and seeking Christ by faith because there's no other way to please him. And the call is for us to come along and to encourage one another in doing exactly that, draw near in faith. That's the first thing he wants us to see. We need to be looking out, friends, for one another's faith. When you see someone not in fellowship with the church, you need to be concerned about their faith. Not their giving, not their presence, mere presence, but their faith. Why? Because the enemy draws you away from the congregation and this is where you this is where, as, as we read in, in um, Matthew cha- or Hebrews chapter 3, right? So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's what happens. Are we concerned for one another's faith? Let us draw near in faith. Number two, he wants us to see that we are to hold fast in hope. And he says in verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. Church, we live in the day when the, the age of, what well, the idea rather of just holding on to something, persevering, keeping on is, is just lost art. <laughs> lost art. Think about this. The, the idea of holding on to a job for any significant time, it, it seems archaic to us. I mean, it used to be that being employed with one company for 10 years 
was looked at as something great, right? It was uh, commendable. Nowadays, in our fast-paced, you know, me-centered world, any slight offense, any discomfort, it causes us to drop out, to look for something else. And in fact, employers right now sometimes even think that you're lazy if you're not switching jobs every three to four years. The words, till death do us part, they used to mean something. They used to mean a lot more, at least, than they mean today. Our marriages are falling apart because the idea of persevering through trials and protecting the covenant that God put us in, it just seems so hard, sometimes seems useless. Why, why go through all that trouble? The concept really of sticking out, of working through it, of overcoming obstacles, I mean, it's no longer prevalent in our culture, especially when it comes to some worthy causes or godly causes. When a challenge arises and makes whatever task we've been assigned extremely difficult, we bail. You see, the author of Hebrews was encouraging his readers not to give up their confession of their hope in the midst of suffering and trials. Many have been persecuted here during this time that he was writing for their faith, and they were losing hope. They were tempted to turn away from their faith altogether, to leave Christ, to abandon their previous confession. And the author encourages them and he says, listen, don't do it. You don't do it. Let us hold fast to our confession of faith. He says, you're on the right track. The suffering or trials, right? There are to be expected. Don't think, don't think it's something, something weird. No, you're on the right track. Don't forsake your confession. Don't walk away from Christ, you have hope. Hang on to hope. Christ is your hope. How do we know that? He already said it earlier. No doubt this was a reference back to Hebrews chapter six. And in verses 19 and 20, he says this, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, you have hope. This hope is grounded in the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. This hope is so real that he calls it anchor, anchor. Kent Hughes writes about anchor in his commentary. He says, no ancient or modern sailor who knows what can happen during an ocean voyage would go to sea in a ship that carried no anchor. Even today, and even if the ship were the greatest and most modern vessel afloat, every sailor knows that situations might arise when the hope of the ship and all her company will depend not on the captain, the crew, the engines, the compass, or the rudder, but on the anchor. When all else fails, there is hope in the anchor. And so the author says, don't waver. Christian, don't bend. That's what, it, that's what this word means, without wavering. He says, you have professed Christ in your persecution and fear hold fast. Why? Why should you hold fast? He says, because he is faithful. Because God is faithful. You know, when you're in danger of losing your, your grip on the confession of your faith, and oftentimes we are tempted to be, we live in a very hostile place for the gospel. Right? It costs us something to follow Christ. It costs us when we live out biblical principles in our workplace, in the society, your faith in Christ, friends, is not welcomed in every place. And so the tendency is to be tempted to compromise your discipleship in order to keep some friendships, maybe keep a job, or whatever trade-off we want to perform. Are you finding yourselves afraid to speak 
about what the Bible teaches on certain topics out of fear of being labeled somehow or cut off altogether. That's where they were. They said this, this whole idea of following after Christ is so hard that maybe going back to, to Judaism and just performing the rituals is, is, is much easier. And he says, no, hold fast to your confession regardless of what the culture thinks. If we're convinced that what God tells us about Jesus is true, then why should we waver? If we're firmly convinced that Jesus is worthy of all the pain and suffering, then we will not waver. That is why this book was written to these Christians to convince them that Jesus is better. When you read from, Matt, or from Hebrews 1.1 all the way to this verse, one thing stands, Jesus is better. Jesus is worthy. And he says, gather to encourage one another in this, to proclaim and to live boldly for Christ. That is why we come together to say, friend, hold on to your confession. And things are gonna get tougher for us, I think, even in this state, in this world. We gonna need each other much more than we think we do just for this mere Focus to come together and to be encouraged. Hold on, hang on, profess, keep being the light, keep shining for Christ. As we were singing, keep proclaiming Christ until your dying breath. We're going to need one another more. Is it possible to live this way? To hold on? Well, if holding on to the promises dependent on your personal commitment, then absolutely not. But God is faithful, we read. God is faithful to provide strength for endurance. His faithful character is beyond all doubt. In his strength, we can hold on without wavering. And this is what he goes on to illustrate in chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11. He says, let me give you many portraits of men who went through some hell on earth and they survived and they remained faithful to Christ by faith, by faith. Did they all have a glorious end? He says some died, some were tortured, some were sawn in two, but that wasn't their end. <laughs> that wasn't their end. That was their translation into glory. And he says, encourage one another to hold on to faith, to hold on to your confession. So let us draw near in faith. Let us hold fast to hope. And he gives us one more exhortation in verse 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Number three, let us Keep up in love. I hope that our study of God's word over the past two months especially convinced you that your Christian life cannot be lived in isolation. A genuine believer longs for godly community. A genuine believer longs for godly community. It is in the community that we learn how to put on Christ and live as redeemed sinners. It is in the community that we grow and stimulate one another. And this final exhortation, or this command, notice that it is not a command for us to love one another and to perform good deeds. That's not the command. Rather, the command is to consider how we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This, this term here, to consider, means that that you have to give some thought to this or it won't happen. Like it doesn't come natural. Consider, think, sit down and think how you can stimulate another to love and good deeds. To, to give thought to it means that you have to take focus off of yourself and onto another. 
okay? And to stimulate is also a rather unusual term. Normally, it has this negative connotation, meaning to provoke. Like, don't provoke one another to anger. And here he says, provoke one another to love. Provoke one another. Stir up one another to love and good deeds. And this love for one another and the performance of good deeds, notice it happens in the context of the gathered church. The early Jewish church had a drop in attendance due to persecution and apostasy. Maybe some of them had their feelings hurt by other believers who didn't know how to kindly care for them and to bring them back into fellowship. So maybe some of them thought, you know what? I think I'm better off worshiping God alone. I don't have to deal with these problems when I'm just by myself. Today, you know, persecution as we think of it, may not be our experience, but people find many reasons to be absent from corporate worship. If you carefully observe the reasons why some drop out of the church, you you will find that so often their focus is on themselves, not on Christ and others. The reason why they're dropping out is because the focus is placed solely on me. Instead of thinking, how can I be used of God to stimulate and to stir others on in love, they think my needs are not being met here. My children's needs are not being met here. My teenage needs are not being met here. That church is very unfriendly or unloving. There are just way too many defects in that church. I love what Raymond Brown said, this teaching reminds us that the church's defects present us with an opportunity for earnest prayer, careful thought, loving discussion, and united action to correct the deficiencies and not to run away from them. What what is God calling us to do here in these verses? He says to gather. First of all, gather Friends, are you looking, just just think about this, are you looking forward to seeing your brothers and sisters here on Sundays or when we gather with our live groups? Or are you looking for excuses to pass up on the gathering for some other more exciting opportunity? For a child of God and a follower of Christ, there is no better place to be than where Christ is, and we know Christ is in the place where his body gathers. Don't make a habit of being isolated from God's people. It is dangerous, as we saw in in Hebrews chapter 3. What I also recall to do, well, we're called to, as we gather, to use our minds and think of ways we can provoke one another. We can stir up one another to keep up in love. How do we provoke? Well, one thing is we need to be praying for one another. We need to be praying for ourselves and we need to be praying for one another because God through his spirit works this way. The second reason how we can provoke is is by example. Is by example. You stimulate others to love. You show good example when we gather of service, of loving others. And you know what? It rubs off. It's amazing how that works. Oswald Chambers says it is a most disturbing thing to be smitten in the ribs by some provoker from God, by someone who is full of spiritual activity. Convicting. It's like, man, this brother or sister, they're they're loving others. They're stimulating and serving others. I gotta be doing the same. And also he says, by encouragement, by encouragement. Not forsaken, but encouraging one another. I was just like going through my logos and and I was like thinking, you know, how many times did Paul use the word encouragement? It's fascinating. Encouragement and rebuke. Think about that. Encouragement versus rebuke. 
If encouragement means to come alongside and just to lift up a limping brother or sister and just to instill and say, hey, believe in Christ, have faith, hold on, come together, let's go, let's love on somebody, right? And rebuke is to go and and confront them about a certain sin. You know, Paul uses the word encouragement 48 times, whether he's encouraging others or he's telling us to encourage or he was encouraged 48 times. You know how many times he commands and uses the word rebuke? One time. In 2 Timothy 2, 2, rebuke with God's word. Rebuke. So most of the rebuking, if you look in the New Testament, was done by Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus was rebuking everybody, and rightly so. So what that tells me as I look at just the sheer volume of Paul's usage is that we got to be encouraging others more than rebuking. Encouraging one another, building each other up. What are we to encourage each other to do as we gather? Well, he says, let us encourage one another to cultivate and grow in faith, hope, and love. And he says, we do that as we see the day drawing near. I love it. This is always the motivation. Jesus is coming, like we saw in 1 Peter. Jesus is coming. Pay attention. The time is now. What do you do? You serve. The time is now. What do you do? You encourage. You stimulate others. Keep going. Keep going. The time is near. And as you wait, we gather to do this. Friends, This is the great triad, right? Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. And by God's great, we can relate to each other in such a way as to build each other up in these three. In our faith and our hope and in our love for God and to one another. The exhortation here is don't be a stranger. Don't be a stranger. Gather with God's people. And when you come, Make it your purpose to encourage someone else in their faith, to instill hope, and to love on them and exhort them to love others. Father, we are so thankful to you for this opportunity and for this reminder, for the opportunity to be in your family and to be exhorted and to be encouraged by the Spirit, and you call us to likewise be these encouragers. The Spirit is our encourager. And he uses the body to stir up us to greater faith, to greater hope, greater love. Oh, show us the way. Help us to consider our needs here in the body. Help us to consider those who are lagging behind, to come alongside, to lift them up, to bring them back in the fellowship and allow the body to heal them. Allow the word to heal them, the spirit to minister through all of these means. Help us, Lord, to learn what it means to be an encourager. We thank you for the clarity of your word. In Jesus' name we ask and pray, amen.